Silverman and I'm here with Congressman Richard Neal, uh, who is not only a long-standing uh, friend and ally of the ESOP community, but one of the most um, exciting, interesting members of the House of Representatives. He's been a member since 1988. He served on the Ways and Means Committee for more than two decades, I believe. Probably for 27 years. Yeah. 27 years, um, and in some real uh, glory days, um, including under the auspices of then Chairman Rostinkowski, um, one of the more infamous and famous members of the of the Ways and Means Committee leadership. And we're going to learn a little bit today about Congressman Neal's interest in politics, um, where he gets his passion for um, social justice slash economic policy, um, and what are some of the things he'd like to see the Ways and Means Committee do now and in the future. Um, so if I can start with early days, can you tell us a little bit about what um, gave you the the passion, maybe from your youth or from early experiences, for politics, and more importantly, for the role of politics in providing economic security? Well, I saw Jack Kennedy the day before the election in 1960. My mom was smart enough to have kept my sisters and myself home, and my grandmother took us to the steps of the Springfield City Hall, where Kennedy finished the campaign. He actually uh, had three stops that day. He came to Springfield, and then I believe he went to Waterbury, Connecticut. Now that might be juxtaposed, but uh, after Springfield, he finished that campaign that night at Boston Garden, and where he gave one of the most rousing speeches of the campaign, and at that time, still having no idea whether or not he could win. He had actually uh, had a major uh, moment in the campaign just about a month before where he finally confronted the issue of religion head on, and he, he, it kept popping up in polling data. So that decision that he made to visit with the Greater Houston Ministers Council in the end proved to be seismic in terms of what it did. And again, rather than brushing the issue aside, he decided to take it head on and uh, raise the issue at, uh, simply by saying nobody asked what my religion was at the PT 109. Mm -hmm. And it changed everything. And uh, he said, you are not telling me that I forfeited my right to be president on the day that I was baptized. And it, Really, you know, when you think of, of what a groundbreaking moment that was, but in any event, 24 hours later, after I had a chance to see him, he was the president-elect of the United States. And I think that the idealism of that age continued to, to uh, motivate me. And at the same time, uh, many other campaigns along the way. I've been at this for more than 45 years, and I've run campaigns, uh, run certainly I've never had a consultant who could tell me what to do in a campaign that I didn't think that uh, it was the right thing to do. And now I'm in my 42nd year of being elected straight. So it's been a great run. And part of it is I, I think I have an interest in legislative uh, skill. I understand the bobbing and the weaving that come along with it. And you know, measure members of Congress by whether or not they're effective. And I, I think that they, the Crusaders tend to be good at making speeches. And then they tend to forget about the other skill set that's necessary to get things done. So you were a history teacher for a time. Um, tell us a little bit about what compelled that, and do you bring some of that history teacher passion into your, into your role as well? Yeah, I have a fascination with history. I've taught government and history, and still uh, I have the title of lecturer at the University of Massachusetts, where I've been for uh, headed toward 20 years, and uh, taught at the area colleges uh, just about during all my time in elected office, with the exception of the years that I was mayor. Springfield, it's hard to have a second job when you're mayor. Um, but 
Uh, yeah, I've had a um, fascination with American history and world history uh, as well, and I like uh, certainly biographies. I think we're living in an interesting age where uh, writers are doing a better job of presenting figures of great uh, historic reputation to us in a more objective light. And I think that we're seeing them in the totality of their lives. And I think that's the better measurement. I think that there's always the danger of presentism, where we say, oh, how could they have ever done that? Well, that happens to be what people thought at the time. And uh, just in finishing, a, I think, a great work that George Will recommended and said it was a gift to America. And that's a pretty good biography of uh, uh, Ulysses Grant. And it's uh, by, oh, I think of his name, but I, I will tell you, I expect to get to page 900 today, and maybe 1,000 by tomorrow. And uh, it, it presents him in period not just of being a very successful general, a better president than he gets credit for, but also his efforts uh, after the Civil War during Reconstruction when he fully pushed, with the exception of Lincoln, probably nobody else, uh, pushed harder for equality for African Americans than he did and intended to bring them fully into government, hired large numbers of women postmasters, and was a man before his time. So I think that that's a side of him that uh, we might not have seen. Chernow is uh, also the biogra biographer of Hamilton. Yeah. And, and uh, of course, we know what Hamilton has done for Broadway success. Kind of a mediocre show. <laughs> <laughs> but again, they, we get to see them in the, in the entirety of yes. our career and lives. So Grant was known as a very aggressive politician, right? I think his um, trademark phrase, or at least the one that those of us who haven't read the biography know, is that uh, he would accept um, no terms except complete and unconditional surrender. That's attributed to Grant, right? So who does that remind you of in, in modern politics? And who does well, Grant remind you of? I don't know. I think it, we, we, you, you've done a good job in terms of context, that uh, it was his victory at Fort Henry and then mm -hmm. Fort Donaldson, but finally almost saving Lincoln's presidency at Vicksburg. Right. And he was a pretty obscure general at that time. And uh, Lincoln discovers him, and the press decides that U.S. stands for unconditional surrender. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when he visits the Willard, he's met, uh, nobody knows who he is, the Willard Hotel, uh, on his way to see Lincoln for promotion. And as he signs in, the uh, clerk just thinks he's just a regular military man and turns the uh, book around and looks at it to see who it is, and it says U.S. Grant, and that there's a standing ovation at the Willard because... Uh, you know, Grant has this uh, consistency of success, and Lincoln senses it. And when Lincoln is admonished from time to time about the selection of Grant, he says, number one, he fights. And number two, he says, I've been through six generals, <laughs> and they haven't been very successful. Right. This guy is successful. And it's also, I think, that, because you're, again, the parameters of your question is right on target. When you consider what uh, Lincoln did with that second inaugural address, with malice toward none and charity for all, when you're back in the family, and that was what Grant saw. And it's a shame that what happened after that to Reconstruction and, and the Klan and the Knight Riders and the terrorism that they inflicted on uh, African Americans in the South, because it was a golden opportunity missed. And, and Grant actually questioned at the end of his life whether or not uh, his success on the battlefield had been transferred to his success in the electoral arena. Mm. 
So are there members of Congress or the administration, current and, and recent, who have some of those, those never-die characteristics? Well, I, I don't think that they have it in the same uh, proportion to the courage that Lincoln and Grant demonstrated or that Roosevelt demonstrated. I think part of it is that uh, there's a reluctance today by elected officials uh, to lean against opinion. I think more and more of this is how do we uh, get through the spin is that because they know too much about what people think? I, I think that's part of it, and I also think the interest groups are very well organized. I think they know just where to put the needle in, and then I think the base of the two political parties, which, by the way, far from being the majority of the party, they exercise undue clout, and I think much of that has to do with the primary season, that uh, candidates have to swing wildly in one direction to be nominated. As you can see already now in the Senate, with some of the prospective Democratic candidates uh, for president are already trying to lay out a marker, anticipating Iowa and New Hampshire. And the problem with that is that we also engage now the perennial campaign. The campaign just keeps on going. And uh, noted earlier, it creates a sort of uh, echo chamber. So people tend to end up saying the same things as opposed to striking uh, a new course based upon evidence. So you are um, the ranking Democrat on the Ways and Means Committee and broadly presumed to be the next chair of the committee should the Democrats take the House. Um, what would you have the committee do differently under a, a Richie Neal chairmanship that would maybe bring back some of the collaborative approach that you seem to long for? Well, I would really want to include Republicans in the decision making. And I think that one of the problems that we have now is that in the aftermath of the debacle over the health care debate, uh, I think Republicans were forced to, to go it alone on taxes, which means we'll revisit that tax package a number of times. So I also think that there would be some room there to improve upon it. I think, uh, for example, allowing the uh, new market tax credits to be expanded, build America bonds, uh, I think pro-growth strategies, private activity bonds, uh, expanding the low-income housing tax credit, and, and incidentally, Strengthening retirement savings. I think that there is a crisis coming in retirement savings, and we all have an interest in that. Uh, we can't celebrate the increases in life expectancy and not understand that that's going to put more of a strain on uh, what retirement's going to look like. I think encouraging people to save more, using the tax code to promote more savings, and then at the same time making sure that people have a, a qualified pension plan that they can embrace. And, and I think that those are some of the issues that I would like to, and I also think that we're going to have to figure out how to strengthen Social Security. But, you know, great things only happen with both parties buying in. And I think that uh, there's an opportunity there to, to include them. Do you think that, given the um, divisive environment heading into the November elections, that there really is an opportunity to have the kind of membership on the Ways and Means Committee that can come together on some of those issues? Well, here's one reason I think that, that we should be optimistic. No matter what happens, we're going to win a lot more seats. Uh, whether we get to 218 or not, yeah. we're still going to change the proportions of the committee. So the likelihood is that uh, whichever party is in the majority, that they're going to have a very thin majority. And that result means simply that uh, I think there might be more incentive to do some cooperating. Uh, before you know it, uh, NAFTA is going to be in front of us. Uh, before you know it, uh, we're going to have an omnibus bill in front of us, and, and that's going to, I assume, they'll, they'll attempt to include some tax corrections. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, 
why we can't extend, for example, the earned income tax credit to single filers is beyond me. I think that just makes a good deal of sense. You talk about a number of um, major tax policy initiatives like um, the earned income tax credit, um, the new markets tax credit, retirement savings related tax policies. There is a real and long-standing debate in Washington and outside Washington about whether or not the tax code really has a role in driving social policy. But a lot of those things are rooted in social objectives. What's your view about that? Well, I uh, will go beyond that. I think we should have mandated savings in America. And Social Security is a mandated savings program. Works very well. I always point out to people that uh, you can outlive an annuity. You cannot outlive Social Security. So I think that that's an example of mandated savings. But when you consider that half the people that get up every day and go to work in America are not in a qualified pension plan. For low-income workers, Social Security can provide 90% of their retirement. That is their retirement plan. And when you also connect that to the idea that the Social Security average benefit is a little bit north now of $16,000 a year. That's about $300 a week. So I, I think that those are engagements where we might encourage social policy. I, I had a long-standing influence, as you know, on the opt-out provision, compelling people to, you want if you want out of the 401k, go in and sign the document that you want out. I think that uh, for a long time, young males in particular, um, for a variety of reasons, didn't see the benefit of setting aside uh, retirement savings in a very uh, early stage of their lives, that you can embrace the genius of compounded interest. And the other part of this that's really important, Stephanie, is that you know, we are now going to be more and more dependent on a rising stock market for retirement savings. And we all know the vagaries of the stock market. Uh, anybody who's had a mutual fund, you know that on the bottom of it says that uh, you know, past performance is no guarantee of future success. So you have to understand that getting people into retirement savings at an earlier stage is uh, a very good idea. I've been working actually with Putnam and State Street uh, on the idea of uh, setting aside savings for children at birth and just letting it sit there. And I, and I think that that's a good stakeout for all of us because you, when you look at retirement savings today, it's got to last for a long time. I mean, uh, today it is not inconceivable to see for people who have been retired for more than 30 years. Right. And they have to live off of that 401k or the defined benefit, which has become more scarce. The only people that really have defined benefit plans now are, are public employees at the state and local level. So I think that those are, you know, incenting economic growth is going to be really important. So my, our members would kill me if I failed to ask you, is that the reason that you like the ESOP model so much? It is, and it's a great model, but there's another part of the ESOP model that I think stands out, and that is it's the idea that everybody pulls the wagon because they all see the benefit of a team effort in pulling the wagon. Uh, when you consider that uh, your 401ks or your, your savings plans are almost double the average Americans. I mean, that's the concept that I think should be rewarded. It was pioneering when it was done. And now, I think it incensed people. And I also think one of the interesting parts about meeting the members of ESCA is that uh, they're all in. <laughs> You talk to them, they all have that enthusiasm about the model. So maybe an ESOP for our Congress would work a little better. Well, I think that if we had an idea that we might be all pulling the wagon, or at least, let me use the other metaphor, rowing in the same direction. Yes. 
Yes, indeed. So one last question before we let you go. Um, uh, Little Bird has told me that the 2018 midterm elections are coming. Um, what would you want Democrats to do the most in order to optimize chances of taking back control? Talk about aspiration. And talk about the traditional membership that we had. And I think that the divisive tone of some of our offerings is not helpful. And I think that at one time when people signed up with us, it was about their future. And it was about economic security and that they were going to have a decent job for the rest of their lives. And, and I think that uh, there are so many parts of this economy, including the idea that there are six million jobs that go unanswered every day, that we ought to be focused on aligning people with the necessary skill set and getting people back to the idea that uh, you really can't take charge of your life. And so I think that ought to be uh, part of the messaging. And to be very candid, our message into the fall should be about economics. Congressman Neal, longtime friend of ESOPs, uh, the ranking Democrat of the House Ways and Means Committee, and perhaps one of the most um, thoughtful brokers of economic policy solutions and uh, advocates for retirement security. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Delighted to be with you. Thank you.